From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Almost there. Three, two, one. We're assessing the health of Colorado's economy a year into the pandemic. And what better place to do so than a health studio in Aurora that was forced to go virtual. Audio, visual, lighting, that all became an investment we never had to think about before. Two sisters own the boutique gym. They are Black women who've been, in general, especially hard hit in the past year, says a Denver business coach who specializes in Black women-owned startups. We saw our businesses closing at a higher rate, and we saw lack of access to federal and state and private funds in the beginning of this journey. Later, another dimension of Colorado's economy that got walloped, tourism. We'll check in with a high country repertory theater and the state's tourism director. Hi, I'm Caitlin Kim from CPR News. Every day I cover Congress and what your representatives and the federal government are doing for you and for Colorado. I'm thankful that you value insightful, independent reporting that provides you with news you can use. You'll rely on CPR to keep you informed about what's going on in your community and beyond. Now I'm asking you to support the journalism that matters to you because you make it possible when you donate. Please give today at CPR.org. Thank you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Things were going well, really well, for the wellness center Brittany Ray Reese and her sister own in Aurora. It was early 2020. The gym was full of women working on their New Year's resolutions. The sisters had been recognized by Congress for business success, and their dream of selling franchises seemed like it was within reach. Then COVID hit. So that dream quickly pivoted to then turning into a virtual wellness studio of fitness training and nutrition coaching. Good morning, good people. My name is Brittany Ray, head big coach of Fit and New, and I am reporting live from our home studio. So today, Suddenly, they had to reinvent their company, Fit and New, which combines Brittany's work as a fitness coach with her sister Jocelyn's expertise in nutrition. Fit and New primarily serves women of color. The wellness industry is a white dominant industry, and it's something that has actually turned a lot of women of color off from investing in their health. Making their business virtual meant unexpected costs. Audio, visual, lighting, that all became an investment that we never had to think about before. Brittany set up a mini studio in her apartment in a room with lots of natural light. It seemed like a great solution, but... I'm teaching morning classes as early as 6.30 a.m. It's dark and then it's light. So it's like, oh, I have to now deal with the lighting and adjusting that in the middle of class because the natural light is changing. It's It's been fun. <laughs> Business was okay for a while. Their clients yearned for community and something to do during the long days of quarantine. Then came summer and the killings of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. That shifted the mood to where we started to see that clients weren't signing on as consistently. And, you know, they needed that time to just grieve and just to process what was going on in the world. And You know, we didn't want them to feel bad that they weren't able to continue with their workout routine because, you know, they were dealing with uh, the stress of the world. We want them to feel supported. 
The sisters set up a live Instagram show to tend to their clients' mental health, not just physical. They also tried distanced workouts in local parks, anything to keep things going and, again, to support their customers. But the financial pressure hasn't let up. The landlord's patience is fading. Early grants are drying up. We're still kind of in limbo trying to figure out what what's next for the business because there's kind of a light at the end of the tunnel with the vaccines, but that doesn't really mean much for us because it's still contingent on what our members are comfortable with. If they're not comfortable with taking a vaccine and coming back into, again, a boutique style gym or wellness studio, then we have to continue with the model that works, which is the virtual and we're trying to figure out how how we can monetize that to keep fit and new what it is. But we have to look at what makes sense financially. Even if we were to build up our membership again, we still have that whole year of just kind of trying to recover. Brittany Ray Reese owns Fit and New Wellness Center in Aurora with her sister Jocelyn. Black women make up one of the fastest growing groups, by some reports, the fastest growing group of entrepreneurs in the country. And before the pandemic, they faced big challenges. Makisha Booth is founder of Sistibiz Network, a Denver nonprofit that provides coaching, grants, and loans to black women business owners. And she spoke with me for our series about Colorado's economy after a year of COVID. A lot of the challenges that Black women in business faced prior to the pandemic had to do with, first of all, rooted in historic and systemic racism, but in a very practical, tangible way, looked like lack of access to capital and resources, lack of access to social capital and the network needed to grow a scalable business. And also just lack of community and exposure to other entrepreneurs that could really support their growth as business owners. Yeah, you talk about lack of access to capital. Forbes recently reported on a survey of 650 Black women and Latinas who'd founded their own businesses. And those women received less than 1% of all venture capital investment between 2018 and 2019. The figure, by the way, for all businesses founded solely by women in general, 2.7%. That is, women are at a disadvantage there, women of color even more so. That's right. And the key to that stat and those stats that people talk about often is that's a VC capital. You haven't even talked about the gap in angel investor capital at lower levels or friends and family capital when you're first starting. Um, And so there's a huge wealth gap and credit gap and trust gap that contribute to the gaps in those sort of phases of funding as well. So before you ever get ready to entertain VC capital, you're usually going to need those levels of capital. And that's where huge gaps lie as well. Yeah, I'm really glad you mentioned that because one aspect of, if you will, generational systemic racism is if people of color are poorer and they don't have family wealth, you can't turn to a father or an uncle or an aunt and say, hey, invest in my business. That's just less possible given the generations of systemic racism. Am I saying that correctly, do you think? Right. You can't turn to family wealth and you also have less opportunities to draw from real estate assets. Yeah. I mean, with the history of redlining. Absolutely. Exactly. And so you've got all the redlining, right? Healthcare real estate and property and urban planning and almost every area of 
disparity um, contributes to the wealth gap and trickles down to the small business owners' struggles to build and grow scalable businesses. Thanks for helping us draw all those connections. What type of companies do you serve mostly and like what size? So over 95% of Black businesses are solopreneurs or have less than two, three employees. And so we want to go down that line from BC all the way to the front of the story where you don't have access to friends and family dollars. And so our businesses usually are in the first three to five years of business um, still haven't seen much growth or, or and still haven't positioned themselves for scalability, um, still don't have access to funding and they're bootstrapping. And they're Black women-owned businesses. And we know that a larger number of our Black women-owned businesses are concentrated in a few industries, two of which are professional services and retail. So we focus our efforts around coaching and training and development and capital access there. Well, my goodness, the nature of the businesses you describe make them very vulnerable to the pandemic. So you add the layer of COVID on top of everything we just discussed pre-pandemic. And this is a bit of a perfect storm, I have to imagine. Yeah, I appreciate you acknowledging that. Because they say when America gets a cold, Black people get the flu. And so then the pandemic comes along. And when you most need health care, and when you most need an equitable space in digital because now you're homeschooling your children. And when you most need access to capital, we didn't have them. And so we saw um, a larger number of our populations impacted by COVID in a number of ways. And yes, we saw our businesses closing at a higher rate and we saw lack of access to federal and state and private funds in the beginning of this journey. Because prior to the Black Lives Matter movement kind of surfacing this huge awareness, There was a good month or two prior to that where the pandemic was just the topic. And during that time, funds and applications for PPP funds and other things opened up. Mm. And I was getting calls every day from women saying, I'm not getting access. I haven't been approved. I'm not even eligible for a lot of this. Like you said, a perfect storm. Are you just exhausted? I mean, (laughs) the, the reason I ask that is it just sounds like it's been a kind of crisis mode, trying to keep, I suppose, your own business afloat while trying to keep others afloat as well. Mm, I hate to promote the whole Black women, superwoman complex thing, but like, (laughs) if anybody's been dealing with crisis, it's been Black people for decades. And my ancestors and elders have certainly managed and dealt with way more disparity and justice and trauma than I have. And, And so I... I'm carrying a legacy of fighting for my people, and I sleep when I can. (laughs) (laughs) I guess I'd love to get to some examples of businesses. And as much as I suppose we could spend time on those that have struggled or closed, I'd love to inject some hope and some sense of innovation. Uh, Who stands out as having taken a pile of lemons and made some lemonade? So I would say one example would be Adrienne Johnson with Brother Mel's barbecue sauce. She was selling her products in about six or seven different stores across the state. And, you know, stores started closing. So she had to rethink sales and rethink her wholesale accounts and really move her entire operation online. Hmm. And so she had very minimal, because we talked about the digital 
you know, divide and digital inequities earlier. She didn't have a sufficient website. She had a kind of basic store, but no sales funnel and that sort of thing. So she literally had to learn DIY digital marketing and sales funnel within 30 to 45 days and get up and running and reselling her products online and rethinking um, selling barbecue sauce online (laughs) (laughs) at that. And so um, she did come up with some creative campaigns and relaunched her business digitally. How's the barbecue sauce? Have you tried it? Oh, it's slamming. Okay. You got to try it. (laughs) You got to try it. (laughs) It's really good. Her father's recipe. Oh, wow. She also started putting emphasis on some of her new recipes. I think she had like a vegan recipe and just starting to think differently about how to sell online and target different markets. You made reference earlier to the protests for racial justice sparked by the deaths of George Floyd, of Breonna Taylor. And it occurs to me that in addition to managing their businesses through a pandemic and through the infancy of their startups, uh, these women also must have had to deal with the emotional toll of this moment in the country as well. I don't know if you've heard of the, the show Queen Sugar on the Oprah Network, but they just released their latest season. And it kind of is like telling the whole story that we all just went through last year all over again today. And I just watched the episodes last night and I was bawling. I couldn't stop crying. Like it was a release that I probably haven't allowed myself to let happen. And the reason why I say this is because you said they had and they're still having. So there's a post-traumatic, you know, stress and post-traumatic, even what they call slave disorder and just generations of this stuff happening and having to process it from generation to generation and it's resurfacing in new ways and yeah, it was really difficult. And we had to stop work- whole workshops just to give women the space to say, like, I can't even talk about taxes or customer service today. Like, I can't even, I can't. Like, we have to stop and talk about what's happening because um, it was a lot. And we all have Black children. I have a Black son, um, Black nieces and nephews. And having those conversations with them is really hard. You made reference there to what's been called post-traumatic slave syndrome. This was an idea explored in a book by the same name, uh, by a woman named Dr. Joy DeGruy. When you speak with the business owners that you coach, is there optimism now? Is there a sense with shots getting into arms and with uh, reopenings that we're headed in the right direction? Hmm. I don't know that... That's how I would describe the feelings and the sentiments um, as optimistic, but relieved that we got through what we've gotten through so far. But I think, again, I think that's quite typical in our community that it's like we got through that part and this too shall pass. And um, we don't know when or what's coming around any corner, but we never have. If you look at the history of what our people have endured, there's this constant experience like this. This is not new. Um, It is a new version with different levels of impact, especially given the internet, just digital and and everything. But it's not new. And everybody's different. You know, some people are relieved, you know, that we got through 2020. Some people are feeling hopeful that now the vaccine is out. Most of us agree that we're not going back to the way things used to be, but at least getting to a space where we can do some of the things that we, we had to stop doing for 
a year to some degree. Um, seeing some of that that light at the end of that tunnel, I do agree we see some of that. And then just some of the support that has come to the Black community over the past year. I do think a lot of us are grateful for um, the level of awareness that has been brought about and the light that has been shined on what our people are enduring, have endured, continue to endure, and some support and resources going in the direction of turning things around. I mean, I remember, for instance, at the height of the protests, there was a lot of talk about how to support Black businesses. I also think of the the funds that Colorado tried to make available through, like, Energize Colorado, GAP funding. Do you sense any kind of permanent changes in either government or consumer behavior? Mm, uh, Maybe I'm not optimistic because I don't see permanent changes. Because when I think permanent, I think systemic and I think very hard to reverse. And I used to work in politics and policy for 10 years. And Mm. so I know what it looks like to have a whole law passed and then have that same law either defunded or reversed um, with the next group of legislators. And so I don't know about permanent, but I do see efforts and I do see resources being moved. And that's more than what I've been seeing over the past decade. So I am encouraged by that. Before we go, you mentioned some of your background there in politics. I would just love to dig into a little bit more of your history and how you came to see yourself as someone who could help other Black women in business. Uh, Share a little bit of that journey with us, will you? Yeah. So first and foremost, my early 20s, I ran a day spa that started off in Cherry Creek and then moved to the Golden Triangle. And I was my client today. I was bootstrapping, had no clue about running a business, was passionate and really good at what I did in terms of the services we offered, but knew nothing about entrepreneurship and had no social capital and had to build a business on all of that in addition to all of the challenges that we spoke about through the interview. And you were and, in a, you were in a neighborhood with really high overhead. I think if Cherry Creek is like not a cheap place to open. High overhead and about 50 competitors on the strip. I walked into every last <laughs> salon and spa myself, gathered their menu, even worked for a couple before I opened. So I knew exactly what I was walking into and still did it anyway with my crazy self. <laughs> and so, <laughs> and so, um, so first and foremost, why I think I can help Black women in the way that we're helping them and, and why I think we're gaining you know, traction and having success is because I was and continue to be in some ways my client. And then secondly, in the work that I've done in the past in politics and policy, um, I've been an advocate for Black and Brown communities around inequity my entire career. I'm passionate about seeing us close gaps and I know the systems and I know people and I know how things work. And then in my work in education, I was formally trained in adult learning and curriculum design. And so I took all of those things and I worked for the SBA for some time. And and so I just had that kind of combination of politics and policy and advocacy work with curriculum design and adult learning with small business development, small business experience, and pulled it together to provide all of those skills to the women we serve. And then most importantly, I got fired from a six-figure job and felt pushed out of a mainstream institution. I felt was very much connected to systemic racism. And as a Black woman, I walked out and into entrepreneurship with those scars and that trauma. And so I, like I said, I'm my client. When women come to me, 
the stats show, the focus groups show, the Federal Reserve report showed a large kind of exodus is happening of Black women from mainstream institutions due to mistreatment or feeling pushed out or misunderstood and just traumatized. So when women come to me, they come with that. They don't just come with an idea and say, I want to start a business. They come with, this is saving my life. This is saving my sanity. This Mm -hmm. is moving me to a space where I feel validated, where I feel like I'm understood and where I feel like I belong, where I feel like I'm leveraging all my skills, but it's scary. um, And I have this baggage to deal with in terms of how I've been treated in the past and what have I experienced. And nobody understands that, but another black woman. And so I think those things kind of come together for why I think Sister Biz is doing what it's doing and having success it's having. I appreciate so much this perspective because I think that we are prone to getting into kind of fairy tale like stories about entrepreneurship, you know, like the scrappy startup and the positivity of that story. But what I hear you saying is that a lot of this is born in feeling like the other in traditional workplaces. Absolutely. And so the numbers show that if you kind of look at the focus groups and the stats and the interviews and um, a larger number of Black women are entering entrepreneurship via need, not opportunity. So you're not sitting at a coffee shop excited about an innovative idea that you're going to find somebody to write a check for. You're looking at, I either need to make ends meet because I'm side hustling right now and I'm being underpaid in my current institution or I'm being pushed out or I have to leave or I'm like going to go crazy because of what I'm experiencing here. And so I have to do something else. And so they come into it like with that. But then on another note, like, I don't know why I feel the need to say this because it's not as deeply entrenched in the story about race, but entrepreneurship is, it's like so many people are out there just talking about it. Like it's this most amazing thing. I don't care what color you are. That is just not true. (laughs) Um, That it's like fun and easy and like, you can be at six figures in no time. First of all, six figures is not even a lot of money. That's like one salary barely. And secondly, like it's not easy. You have to grind and you have to hustle and you have to build. And when you're coming from corporate America or mainstream America, all those systems they have up and running, you've got to build your own. It is rewarding. It is a beautiful journey, but it is absolutely not easy. Makisha, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for your time. I know I know it's limited these days. It's in short supply. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for having me. Makisha Booth, founder of Sistabiz Global Network in Denver, which supports small businesses and the Black women who own them. With the flip of a pandemic switch, a theater in Grand Lake went dark last year and lost 20,000 customers. Michael Querio is executive artistic director of Rocky Mountain Repertory Theater, which brings a bit of Broadway to the mountains. We really hit bottom the moment we canceled the summer and we made the decision, just like every other theater in the country, that we had to shut down. We had no option. I think that's when we hit bottom. And we've just been hovering at the bottom for a long time. (laughs) The pandemic hit in spring, but they'd already sold summer tickets. That money had to be refunded or the tickets rolled over to another season. And Querio told performers and crews he'd already hired not to come. He couldn't pay them. We couldn't have 50 seasonal employees. We couldn't have 300 people a night. You know, I think we had a, a little period of pity and oh, woe is us. But then after a, peer, a suitable period of mourning, we went, well, what can we do? Normally, the cast and crew would fill the theater's employee housing. But instead of letting those rooms sit empty, Querio reached out to people around the country who'd worked in Grand Lake over the years. So we offered the housing 
to alumni from our theater, you know, anybody who's been a recent alum of our theater is out of work. No one had a job. So we offered them a place to escape and they could come and take one of our housing units and we called it an artist colony. And those artists paid their utilities and agreed to perform once or twice a week on the theater's patio, which held 40 distant seats. One of the things that's been really important to Rocky Mount Rep since the beginning is that we are part of the community. We're closely linked with the town of Grand Lake and we take our, our job of giving arts and culture to the town we take that really seriously and we knew we wouldn't be able to do it in the way we usually do. We still were able to offer something. In a pandemic twist, while the theater sat empty, the town of Grand Lake was packed with tourists eager to spend time outside. Sometimes you would think there was a parade going on by how many cars were inching into town. Many business owners said they had the best summer they've ever had which got to be kind of frustrating for us because we were dead in the water and they're having the time of their life down at the other end of town. Now, grants, including one from the public-private Energize Fund, sustained the theater along with donors. People who, it chokes me up, people who love our theater have been so generous this year. And they're always generous, but this year has been unbelievable. When we're clearly in a crisis and we reached out and saying, guys, we don't. Yeah. yeah. You can hear how moved he is there. So what's next? Well, Querio hasn't hired anybody for this summer yet. The ticket page on the website says, stay tuned. We are cautiously optim- optimistic, cautiously optimistic that we are going to open with a season in June, just a couple months from now. That is Michael Querio, executive director of the Rocky Mountain Repertory Theater in Grand Lake. For a statewide look now, I'm joined by Colorado's tourism director, Kathy Ritter. Kathy, thanks for being with us. Thank you. It's my pleasure. We know that people are getting vaccinated now. Do you expect a kind of cork out of the bottle effect where everybody starts traveling like mad? You know, it's uh, there is a phenomenon known as the cash stash or the uh, or revenge shopping, revenge travel that is um, really descriptive of what's happened in other economies as they reopened, it's particularly in China after an event like this. And what we've seen is that people have almost stockpiled cash. You know, the people who kept working throughout this period of time found they had fewer ways of spending that money because they weren't going out to restaurants. They weren't traveling. And in in many cases, they weren't shopping the way they had in the past. And so now people are ready to use this, this nest egg, if you will, to you know, start enjoying life again. And one of the chief ways that people are doing this is through travel and shopping. Do you think that travel will look the same as it did before the pandemic? Or do you sense that people might be more cautious around crowds or uh, seek more of an outdoor experience or something? Yeah, I think it's very doubtful that things are going to snap back to the way they were back in 2019. We've all been through some profound changes in this past year. And, you know, just uh, based on what Mr. Querio was saying, too, 
what we're seeing is that there has been a very uneven impact of coronavirus on our economy. Some parts of our economy have, have really thrived, but other parts have really suffered. And we've seen that same uneven um, impact across the state of Colorado and across the country. So, you know, I think what we'll see is that um, we certainly will start to see some recovery in some of the areas that have been most impacted, like restaurants, hotels, attractions, you know, performing arts venues, which have been deeply impacted. But I think what we'll also see is that travelers' preferences have changed. There's a lot of research to support the fact that people really did flock to the outdoors last year, especially close by. Um, I don't really expect that people will lose their love for the outdoors, but we're also starting to see a resurgence of interest in visiting places that were harder to visit last year, like cities. Um, a recent study pointed out that 42% of travelers this upcoming travel season are saying they're planning to visit a city destination. They've missed their city experiences. So I think um, this is going to be once again a year to be very nimble and responsive to a, a very changed consumer. We're also hear, hearing that people are very interested in making certain um, that the places they visit are clean. There's a whole new emphasis on the importance of sanitation and making certain you know the whole travel party stays safe no matter where they go. You mentioned some of the folks who were hardest hit in this. So hotels among them. Uh, what else? Just run through those who have the sort of biggest gap to make up. Yeah, the um, the national um, survey or not the, the national data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics shows that tourism, um, leisure and hospitality was the sector that was most deeply impacted, you know, by the very necessary steps taken to contain coronavirus. Out of the leisure and hospitality sector, these segments most deeply impacted were accommodations and arts and culture and recreation. Mm -hmm. um, we've seen that play out in job loss. Um, tourism is uh, tourism sector alone is responsible for 39% of the jobs that have been lost due to uh, the pandemic. The next largest category was government, but what's happened with 13 with the 13% loss of its workforce, a permanent loss of workforce. What that has what has happened is that these people who used to work make their livings in tourism and leisure hospitality sectors have found their way to other jobs because they couldn't be out of work for a whole year. Oh. And so now we sort of have this new issue of refilling and backfilling these positions as the tourism economy starts to reopen. Well, I'm, I'm so glad you bring that up, uh, Kathy Ritter, head of the Colorado Tourism Office, because we spoke with Brad Modisett of Mountain Whitewater, a rafting company in Fort Collins, and they do trips on the Kashlapooter River. And he said... Even after tourists come back, you know, some of his workers just won't. Um, partly it's that they made more on unemployment than he could pay in the last season. But as you say, some of these workers have found jobs elsewhere. How do you address that? 
This is a big question, Ryan. Um, there are states across our nation, because this isn't just a Colorado phenomenon, of course. This, this is what has happened with the leisure and hospitality sector across the United States. So some states are responding with workforce training programs specifically to retrain people or recruit people into these leisure and hospitality jobs. Mm. So it is one of those, um, you know, it is a challenge that many businesses are grappling with. Fortunately, we in Colorado have a wonderful lifestyle, a wonderful place to be, which certainly helps attract but it may be one of those um, barriers this year to fully recovering the tourism industry, which at this point is projected to have probably a three to four year recovery cycle ahead three to, to, four. to regain the ground that we held back in 2019. Do you think that they'll just, the employers will just have to pay more? In these, you know, it's possible, but that was already happening. I had heard stories um, in Denver of, of dishwashers being offered $16 an hour. Um, that there were casino, you know, as new casino uh, lodgings were preparing to open in the mountains. Um, I was hearing of part time workers being offered full time benefits and shuttle buses to take people from. Uh, Denver and in other front range cities up into the mountains to work in the casinos. So, you know, some of those accommodations already had been in place, but I expect that people, um, employers will have to be that much more um, creative about how to build the workforces they need this year. Help me square something. So we began this interview with you talking about the cash stash, people and their pent up demand to travel. And yet you say that there might be a four to five year or three to four year tail on this for tourism. Why such a long rebound if there's so much pent up demand? Well, it is because there, uh, tourism is a very complex industry. And so there are portions of it that are expected to come back rather quickly. Um, but there will still be, even, even through the course of the summer, within the next six months, and that means by next September, about 80% of people say they will take a trip sometime between now and the next six months. By July, that number is still only around maybe 60%. So that means, and, and maybe 55%, the numbers keep changing every week. Huh. That means, you know, we, we will still not be back at full strength this summer because many people are still cautious about traveling. and um, But we're starting to see that resurgence of interest. People are starting to take active books. The other thing we're hearing is that people are planning not to take just one trip this year. They're planning multiple trips. The average number of trips planned is three. And that's because people are planning to reconnect with friends, with family, um, you know, with other people that they have really missed during this pandemic. But they're also making time for leisure travel. And so, like so many things we're hearing in this series about Colorado's pandemic economy, the recovery is going to be uneven. It will be fast for some and not necessarily so for others. We haven't really talked about business travel. Uh, I know that's of particular import to the airline industry, for instance, uh, convention traffic, that sort of thing. Do you want to say just a few words, Kathy Ritter, about, about that aspect of tourism? Yes, <clears throat> such a good question. Leisure travel is expected to be the first segment to recover. Hmm. And then perhaps international travel, but that is going to depend on, you know, borders reopening and flights being restored. 
the last segment that's expected to recover is business travel. Um, And that is because so many businesses have put um, travel on hold during this period of time, but have also learned that um, many, you know, have also learned their employees are able to, um, you know, be very productive in a virtual environment. And it's also a business expense. Many businesses are still recovering from pandemic and maybe recovering, you know, for the next couple of years, some have thrived. Um, But again, it's been an uneven picture. So business travel expenses probably will be one of those ways that businesses cut costs for a while. Kathy, as part of this conversation, um, I want to ask you about perhaps a tourism business, an attraction that has perhaps gone out of business that will not emerge from the pandemic. Well, I think, you know, there are so many examples as Mr. Querio was, was pointing out, I mean, his, his organization was hanging on by its fingernails. There have been many, you know, longtime restaurants or small neighborhood restaurants that simply could not find a way to operate under these conditions. The relief uh, packages that have been shared Um, you know, as part of the stimulus packages have been a lifeline to so many businesses. But we've seen just massive impacts across the tourism economy, the occupancy rate, the average occupancy rate statewide in Colorado was cut in half for hotels. Um, We saw, um, even though, you know, so many people were aware that we saw a huge surge of interest in our public lands, um, some and some of those destinations on our western slope saw increases of 137 percent in their visitor volumes from the eight months prior to the coronavirus mm. outbreak, compared with the eight months afterward. But visit Denver, uh, not visit Denver, but Denver Just County, briefly, for example, saw a downturn, of, saw a loss of 69 percent of its visitor volume. So we're talking again about the unevenness of the experience. Some thrive while others suffer. I'm sorry to have to cut you off there. Kathy Ritter, director of the Colorado Tourism Office. She caps our two-day look at what COVID has done to the state's economy. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's been nearly two years since we released an episode of our podcast since Columbine. We didn't expect to add another episode to the series, but our conversation last week with former Columbine principal Frank DeAngelis was so important, it just had to be shared. And it does, it re-traumatizes you. But I refuse to be helpless or hopeless. I refuse to give up. I'm Nathaniel Miner. Real advice about seeking help and not trying to power through alone. Special episode of Since Columbine and the entire series, anywhere you get your podcasts. It's Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. A public funeral today for fallen Boulder police officer Eric Talley. He was the first to respond to calls for help at the King's Supers, where a gunman opened fire. Officer Talley was killed along with nine other people. This past weekend, one of the first to die in that mass shooting was laid to rest in Lakewood. CPR's Dan Boyce has this remembrance. The service for 23-year-old Nevin Stanisic is held Saturday in the same Serbian Orthodox Christian church he'd attended since he was a boy. It's a small, tightly packed chapel, walls decorated in ornately carved wood and medieval-style paintings of saints. As the coffins wheeled in, the sound rising above the traditional hymns, above everything, is the desperate grief of Nevin's father, Radmila. Oh, 
Family members are reaching out, each holding onto Rodmilo with one hand. Nevin's mother, Mariana, and sister, Nicolina, and others. Rodmilo and Mariana immigrated to Colorado in the late 1990s, Serbs fleeing the violence of war in Bosnia, coming for a better and a safer life in the United States. This church, St. John the Baptist, is a focal point for the area's modest and tight-knit Serbian community. The ceremony is half in Serbian and half in English. The parishioners hold white candles, grasping them below paper discs meant to catch the dripping wax. The governor and lieutenant governor are here, two congressmen, mayor of Boulder, mayor of Lakewood. Nevin had a job fixing coffee machines and had just finished working on one at the Starbucks inside the King Supers on Table Mesa Drive. He left the store, got into his car, and was gunned down right there. Likely the first fatality in a mass shooting that has further traumatized a state already so familiar with such tragedies. Dear brothers and sisters, it is very difficult to say any words of comfort in this incredibly difficult and heartbreaking moment. Reverend Sasha Petrovich traveled from an Orthodox church in Omaha, Nebraska to give the eulogy. He says Nevin's mother had been watching the news last Monday on the unfolding situation in Boulder when the camera focused on Nevin's car. Her first thought was not whether her son is among the ones who got shot, but her first thought was, oh my God, did my son do something terrible? So there is something more terrible than to be an innocent victim. Despite the horror surrounding his death, Nevin had lived honorably. A good kid, a serious and caring young man. In our holy Orthodox faith, Serbian Orthodox culture, honor is more precious than even this life on this earth. The coffin is dark mahogany, and inlaid at the head is a golden cross. A final tradition allows close family to kiss that cross, to say their last goodbyes. And it's at this that Nevin's father, Rodmilo, draped himself over his son's coffin, his head on the cross, wife, daughter, family holding him still, all grieving for a life lost, a future stolen, One of 10 people who, for one reason or another, were at that grocery store on a Monday afternoon. 10 lives taken by bullets one week ago. In Lakewood, Dan Boyce, CPR News. And today, all city of Boulder buildings and facilities are closed to give employees time to grieve and to honor the victims. Native Americans made up fewer than 2% of students at Colorado's public colleges and universities in 2019. CPR's Paulo's Chalcida reports there's a renewed push in the state legislature to raise that number. 
When he was applying for colleges as a high school student in Hominy, Oklahoma, Noah Shadlow didn't have many options. Not wanting to become a financial strain to his parents and siblings, he had his eyes trained on a small, Native American student-only university in Kansas due to its low tuition. But then he heard about Fort Lewis College in Durango. I liked that I could attend without having to pay tuition through the tuition waiver. I enjoyed being around my Native American friends back where I'm from, so I kind of wanted to keep that atmosphere going. Fort Lewis provided that to me. Fort Lewis College's history is unique. First, an army post built after the Civil War, the fort was decommissioned and turned into a federally run Native American boarding school, which forced tribal students to abandon their cultural identities and assimilate into white Eurocentric culture. The land was transferred to the state in 1911, on the grounds that it would become a school that doesn't charge tuition for Native American students. More than 100 years later, that mandate still stands, benefiting students like Shadlow. Now a junior, Shadlow is part of the approximately 41% of students at Fort Lewis who hold tribal citizenship. Tom Stridicus, the college's president, says serving those communities is important given the history of the land. Fort Lewis sits within just a few miles of many indigenous tribal sovereign nations, the Southern Ute and the Ute Mountain Ute. So our relationship with these communities is really important. Of the nearly 2,400 Native American students enrolled in Colorado's public four-year institutions in 2019, 955 of them were attending Fort Lewis. That means Fort Lewis is the exception, not the rule. According to 2016 census data, only about 19% of college-age indigenous Americans were enrolled in college. A bill introduced by Democrats in this year's legislative session may help to address that problem in the state. Senate Bill 2129 would require public universities to offer in-state tuition classification to students who are members of an indigenous tribe with historical ties to Colorado. According to the Colorado Commission of Indian Affairs, there are 48 tribal nations in the United States with history based in Colorado. If the proposed legislation passes, citizens of all 48 of those tribes will be eligible for in-state tuition. Language in the bill excludes Fort Lewis College from any potential changes, citing its historic commitment to serving Native American students. Stridicus supports the bill, but notes steps have to be taken beyond tuition classification. I think one of the things that we've learned at Fort Lewis College is that connection to community for Native American students is exceedingly important. So that means that curriculum, that means that services for students, that means that institutional orientations have to be shaped and molded accordingly. Chantel Jones, a Navajo public health student at Fort Lewis, agrees. She says resources and spaces made available on campus for indigenous students like her have fostered success. My ultimate goal is to actually develop a health promotion program incorporating traditional Navajo healing properties to empower and heal patients with diabetes on the Navajo Nation. Being at the college sort of inspired me to come up with that idea and mentally build that health promotion program. Advocates also say college recruitment efforts need to be re-examined if the bill passes. For Jones, applying for colleges and financial aid in high school was a difficult time. She says her and other Indigenous students didn't get the same amount of attention from counselors and recruiters other non-Native students received. When I was signing up for my FAFSA, nobody was really giving me any guidance. They kind of just sat me down in front of a computer and told me to fill it out. I didn't know what any of these numbers meant, how to fill it out. And so I had to ask another teacher who had nothing to do with counseling. She was actually Native American herself. 
And she sat by me and we went through it together and I had eventually filled it out. Ernest House Jr., a Fort Lewis trustee and the former executive director for the Colorado Commission of Indian Affairs, says Colorado's other universities will have to put significant effort into revamping their outreach to tribal communities should the bill pass. There's a few things that should happen. One, broaden the perspective, students, awareness, education. I think that the other thing is stronger communication with high school counselors, and also uh, tours with middle school students and high school students and getting the availability of opportunity to bring them on campus, of course. Senate Bill 2129 passed through the Senate Education Committee unanimously. It now awaits a hearing in the Appropriations Committee. Other states like Iowa, Utah, and Washington have adopted similar policies. I'm Paolo Shasada, CPR News. And that is Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to our team. Carl Bielek. Ali Budner. Andrea Dukakis, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Avery Lill, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, and I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.